Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together this evening. We thank you for this beautiful weather. Lord, we pray that you would help us as we come into this class tonight to set aside all of the things with which we've been preoccupied during the day, things that have dragged us down or things that have been on our minds, and then instead, you would refresh us with your Holy Spirit, that you would speak to us through the scripture passages that we will look at, that you would speak to us through the wisdom that's contained in this book, and that you would use this time to draw us more and more deeply into your kingdom. For we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, very glad that you are here. Uh, we are going to have another little experiment on the music. I will tell you that you have heard this before. Okay? So, we'll see if anyone gets it. Yes. All right, I think they've got it over at that table because they've sung it. That's probably an unfair advantage. So this is How Lovely is Thy Dwelling Place, um, Johannes Brahms from the German Requiem. And there's a reason that we're listening to it, uh, but I'll let you just speculate about that for right now. <laughs> it is really good. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about it later on. So let's say together our scripture verse as we get started. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you, keep your head in all situations, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry." There's much deep truth there. So a word of welcome to anyone who is new, whether you're new in person or new online. Uh, we have some additional people joining us now from Winnipeg again. Um, I hate to tell you Winnipeg people that it's 70 degrees down here. Uh, but if you're new to the class, there are three ways to approach this class. The first is what we call being on the beach. And if you are on the beach, you are a spectator. You are probably not really in the game at all. You might possibly be in the right stadium, uh, but you are just picking up what you can pick up when you feel like it. Uh, you may be preoccupied with thinking about your meal plan for the week or uh, what you're going to do with your income tax refund, whatever it might be. Uh, we're just glad that you're here and whatever you get through osmosis is wonderful. Uh, the second way to approach this is by snorkeling, and that means that you go deeper on the chapters and the themes that interest you. Usually when you get the email each week, there will be 
uh, some links that you can explore, some handouts that you can read, um, some things that you can contemplate. Uh, if you are snorkeling on the parts that you're not interested in, you can just hit the delete button on the email. But on the weeks that you are interested, you can go follow all those links. Or you can be a scuba diver if you're wired like I am and you are basically a nerd and you want to go explore every little nook and cranny about everything and then go down so many rabbit trails that you forgot what you were looking for to begin with. Uh, but whatever basis you're on, that's great. We are on chapter nine, and as I was just explaining to someone, we've been on this chapter for four weeks. Um, please do not lose heart. This is the longest chapter in the book, and it is kind of the hinge of the book, which is why we've spent such a long time, but we will finish it up tonight. Uh, if you are new to the class, please, if you're in person, sign the little pad over there or if you are online or live streaming or on the podcast, Google St. Philip's Church Charleston and shoot me an email so I can get you added to the class email list. And that way you will get all the class summaries, you'll get the music links. If you, like Laura, want to listen to all of the music, you will have that link and you can listen to it to your heart's content. Uh, a couple of things about reading this book. I know it is really hard to not read ahead, but I would encourage you to try to not get too far ahead and just let each, the way Lewis sequences things is very much part of the way that he writes. And so the more that you lean into that, uh, the more of a blessing it will be. So just to review a couple of key themes that are in this chapter, but before I do that, one important announcement Please do not come with your notebook in hand at 7.15 next week expecting Lewis class because we will be in uh, the last stages of the Ash Wednesday service at that point. So we will not have class next Wednesday, but we will pick up the Wednesday after that. And no supper. Um, no, there is supper. There is supper, but no class. And the service is at 6 o'clock rather than 5.30. So just keep that in mind. So a couple of themes that we've been talking about in this chapter um, that are really important. And one of the first ones, and this is, uh, Lewis talks about this in Mere Christianity. And what he says about it in Mere Christianity is, if this bothers you, if it makes your head hurt or your eyes cross, just put it to the side and don't think about it. Um, and this is the whole idea of God's time versus our time. And basically what Lewis is trying to get at is that God's time is not our time and it is beyond our ability to comprehend. That God does not exist in chronological time like we do. He sees all of our time at once. And one of the things that Lewis is trying to get at in this uh, chapter is that we get all worked up about different aspects of things about hell because we don't understand about God's timing. And he basically is saying there are some things that are holy mysteries that we need to allow to be holy mysteries. We can try to understand, but we don't need to get hung up or major in the minors. And George MacDonald is the uh, spirit guide in this chapter uh, if you're new, you might want to go back uh, 
I guess, three weeks ago to the class on who was George MacDonald. Um, that will help you. But in this chapter, MacDonald says to Lewis, son, you cannot in your present state understand eternity. That is what mortals misunderstand. And then, of course, a famous scripture reference. Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. We also talked about last week that heaven is solid and real, and that in the conversation, McDonald says, hell is a state of mind. You never said a truer word, and every state of mind left to itself every shutting up of the creature within the dungeon of its own mind is, in the end, hell. But heaven is not a state of mind. Heaven is reality itself. All that is fully real is heavenly. And this is very uh, consonant with what the scriptures teach us about heaven as being not some sort of oozy, wispish sort of existence, but Remember in Revelation 21, the beautifully described new heavens and new earth that come down and are described and are clearly tangible and corporeal. Uh, thirdly, Lewis is not interested in teaching about the timing and mechanics of how salvation and atonement work, but in the nature and importance of choice. And really, I should say, especially for those of you who are new, what he's more interested than anything else is drawing people to Jesus Christ. That's what he's about in this book. But what he's trying to explore through these supposals, all of these stories about these different characters that we encounter, is about the nature of choice and how very important that is. And that although we have this gift of free will that enables us to choose, that we need to be very careful what we do with that gift. And we're going to hear more about that tonight. Fourth, we cannot hold on to anything of this world if we hope to be saved. There's an old booklet that some of y'all might have read that was by a guy, and I think his name was Robert Lloyd Munger, called My Heart, Christ's Home. And it's a wonderful booklet that I would commend to you if it's still in print. But it's about inviting Christ into your heart and how, at first, everything is really nice. And um, Christ is being polite and sitting and having a cup of tea in the living room. Um, but then after a while, he says, show me the rest of the house. And he goes from room to room. And then there's that locked closet that has all those things that you don't want anyone to know about or to see. And... Uh, Munger basically talks about that all of us uh, have these parts of our lives that most desperately need Christ's presence, but our tendency, just like Genesis 3, is to hide and to hide them. And so uh, this idea of trying to hold on to things, keep, keep, a, keep a corner that Christ doesn't go into, uh, is part of what Lewis is trying to get at in this chapter, and this goes back to the subtitle of the course about your truth or God's truth, that when you look at each one of these characters and these supposals, each one of them is holding on to something that they believe is true, that they believe is their own special possession, that's something that is unique 
about them and helps define who they are. And when they hear that they have to submit that to Christ, they're like, oh no, we're not going to do that. And the whole problem is that salvation hinges on being given totally over to Christ. We talked about this verse here from Galatians. I'm crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me, and the life that I now live, I live through faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. That doesn't say anything about, there's no except this little part of my life that I'm holding on to, or except for my belief about this, or, you know, isn't it so nice that Jesus got most things right? Yeah, that is not the approach here, that it is an all or nothing approach. And we talked about the parable of Lazarus and the rich man. We also talked about, and I love the fact that Lewis put this in here, because one of the things about Lewis after his conversion is he went from uh, what he described as a self-righteous, arrogant prig to being someone who was deeply humble. And this particular temptation about studying about working for Christ is not the same as knowing him. He even has George MacDonald say to him, you might need to watch out for that particular trap. You know, as Lewis is writing these books, the temptation would be to come, become puffed up in your own knowledge and to be thinking that you're so busy teaching about Christ that that's the most important thing, whereas you have, in fact, left aside knowing him, being in relationship with him, which is the whole point of the matter. And then lastly, God does not force salvation on those who do not wish to follow him. And this is very much if you want to go uh, into the New Testament and try to unpack the passage about the unforgivable sin and blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It's all caught up in the same idea that if you are bound and determined that you want your way, if you are the poster child for Burger King, uh, you know, have it your way, you are not, Christ is not going to force you to be saved. And no matter how much uh, it is clear that Christ's way is truth, if you reject that, he will not force you to follow him. So that brings us into the last part of chapter 9. And part of me is still trying to figure out why this isn't chapter 10 instead of part 2 of chapter 9, uh, because it really does switch uh, there's still this dialogue with MacDonald, but the focus of the chapter changes gr dramatically. So the first person that we encounter is the grumbler. And I just want to say uh, this is not directed personally to anyone in this room. Uh, you may feel that someone has been reading your mail uh, when you hear this passage, but let me assure you that it is general in its intent. So... Here we are. Uh, this woman is talking a mile a minute when Lewis and McDonald come up on her. That was one of the most dreadful things that happened to me. I've been dying to tell you because I felt sure you'd tell me I acted rightly. No, wait a moment, dear, till I've told you. 
I tried living with her when I first came, and it was all fixed up. She was to do the cooking, and I was to look after the house, and I did think I was going to be comfortable after all I'd been through, but she turned out to be so changed, absolutely selfish, and not a particle of sympathy for anyone but herself. And as I once said to her, I do think I'm entitled to a little consideration because you at least lived out your time. But I oughtn't to have been here for years and years yet. I was murdered, simply murdered, dear. That man should never have operated. I ought to be alive today. And they simply starved me in that dreadful nursing home. And no one ever came near me. And the shrill, monotonous whine died away as the speaker, still accompanied by the bright patience at her side, moved out of hearing. I'm troubled, sir, said I, because that unhappy creature doesn't seem to me to be the sort of soul that ought to be even in danger of damnation. She isn't wicked. She's only a silly, garrulous old woman who's gotten to a habit of grumbling. And one feels that a little kindness and rest and change would put her all right. MacDonald said, the whole question is whether she is now a grumbler. I should have thought there's no doubt about that. Aye, but ye misunderstand me. The question is whether she is a grumbler or only a grumble. If there is a real woman, even the least trace of one, still there inside the grumbling, it can be brought to life again. If there's one wee spark under all those ashes, We'll blow it till the whole pile is red and clear. But if there's nothing but ashes, we'll not go on blowing them in our own eyes forever. They must be swept up. But how can there be a grumble without a grumbler? The whole difficulty of understanding hell is that the thing to be understood is so nearly nothing. But you'll have had experiences it begins with a grumbling mood, and yourself still distinct from it, perhaps criticizing it, and yourself in a dark hour may will that mood, embrace it. You can repent and come out of it again, but there may come a day when you can do that no longer. Then there will be no you left to criticize the mood, nor even to enjoy it, but just the grumble itself going on forever like a machine. And part of what Lewis is getting at here, and this is something where if you are a sailor, uh, you will appreciate. If you have laid a course and you are planning to sail from Charleston to Bermuda, and you've laid the, the course, but you're off by just half a degree, that's not a very big error. But the farther you go, on that course, with that little error at the beginning, the wider you are away from the target. And when you get to where you think you should be at Bermuda, you find you're out in the middle of the open sea with no idea where you are. And what Lewis is trying to say here is that these things that we think are little, little choices are in fact very dangerous to our spiritual welfare. The next thing that happens is a little bit of a surprise. Uh, there is a passage right in the middle of these uh, unattractive ghosts about beauty. Lewis says this, 
Perhaps it was because of his presence, McDonald's, that my other senses also appeared to be quickened. I noticed scents in the air, which had hitherto escaped me, and the country put on new beauties. There was water everywhere, and tiny flowers quivering in the early breeze. Far off in the woods, we saw the deer glancing past, and once a sleek panther came purring to my companion's side. And I actually think this is one of the most important things in the chapter, and it's really easy to just skip it. But part of what Lewis is trying to remind us of is that God is calling to us through the beauty that he has made and that that beauty is speaking to us about his truth and that whole idea that Lewis uses in the last battle, come further up, come further in, which is going on in the great divorce as well, of coming further up and further into this heavenly country. And it's interesting that Lewis juxtaposes the passage with beauty with the woman who is a grumbler or a grumble. Because if you are grumbling, it is impossible to be grateful. They are mutually exclusive. Grumbling usually involves turning your eyes where? Towards yourself. Looking at yourself and your circumstances and saying, oh, woe is me, poor, poor, pitiful me, with the little violin, yes. Uh, but beauty demands that you get outside of yourself. It demands that you focus on something that's not you and that you focus on the things of God and his kingdom and his creation. And so part of what Lewis is doing here is telling us that part of the way to avoid these things is to be focused on appreciating the beauty and truth of God's kingdom. So the next character is just dreadful. Um, do you all know what a vamp is? All right, people who are younger, do you know what a vamp is? All right, vamp is not somebody from Twilight played by Robert Pattison. Uh, now, a vamp in Lewis's time was a woman who was a seductress. Uh, if you want to treat, go home and listen to Hard-Hearted Hannah, the Vamp of Savannah, uh, which is a Tin Pan Alley song. Uh, but there's this woman who is a vamp that is up here. Uh, she's one of the ghosts. And she is uh, just appalling. And the way Lewis describes her is just, ugh. So here we go. She appeared to be contorting her all but invisible face and writhing her smoke-like body in a quite meaningless fashion. At last I came to the conclusion, incredible as it seemed, that she supposed herself still capable of attracting the bright spirits and was trying to do so. She was a thing that had become incapable of conceiving conversation, save as a means to that end. If a corpse already liquid with decay had arisen from the coffin, smeared its gums with lipstick and attempted a flirtation, the result could not have been more appalling. In the end, she muttered, stupid creatures, and turned back to the bus. 
This put me in mind to ask my teacher what he thought of the affair with the unicorns. Remember the woman who was so obsessed with herself, she couldn't stop talking by, about herself for even a moment. The bright spirit couldn't get a word in. So finally he sends a herd of unicorns stampeding at her so that she gets her eyes off of herself for at least a moment. And so uh, McDonald says, it may well have succeeded. You will have divined that he meant to frighten her not that fear itself could make her less a ghost, but if it took her mind a moment off herself, there might be a chance. I have seen them saved so. And then the next group of people is what I would call the know-it-alls about hell. People who have got either doctrines of hell that they're very proud of and would be happy for the right honorarium to come and lecture to your theological society about it, or people who... Um, think hell is, uh, you know those cushions that say, if you don't have anything nice to say, come sit next to me, or, or the ones that say, um, what is it, heaven for something, hell for company. Um, the idea that really, if you're kind of urbane and witty, hell is a much more fun place to be than heaven. These are the kinds of people Lewis is talking about here. So we met several ghosts that had come so near to heaven only in order to tell the celestials about hell. Indeed, this is one of the commonest types. Others who had perhaps been, like myself, teachers of some kind, actually wanted to give lectures about it. They brought fat notebooks full of statistics and maps, and one of them, a magic lantern. Now, let me just add, magic lantern here actually means slide projector. That was the nickname for slide projectors in this era. Some wanted to tell anecdotes of the notorious sinners of all ages whom they had met below. But the most part, one seemed to think that the mere fact of having contrived for themselves so much misery gave them a kind of superiority. You've led a sheltered life, they bawled. You don't know the seamy side. We'll tell you. We'll give you some hard facts as if to tinge heaven with infernal images and colors had been the only purpose for which they came. All, so far as I could judge from my own exploration of the lower world, were wholly unreliable and all equally incurious about the country in which they had arrived. They repelled every attempt to teach them, and when they found that nobody listened to them, nobody listened to them, they went back one by one to the bus. And then, and this part is really sad, the ones who hate goodness and joy. I saw other grotesque phantoms in which hardly a trace of the human form remained. Monsters who had faced the journey to the bus and come up to this country and limped far into it over the torturing grass only to spit and gibber out in one ecstasy of hatred, their envy and their contempt of joy. The voyage seemed to them a small price to pay if only once, within sight of that eternal dawn, they could tell the prigs, the toffs, the sanctimonious humbugs, the snobs, the haves, what they thought of them. I've seen that kind converted, said my teacher, when those you would think less deeply damned have gone back. Those that hate goodness are sometimes nearer than those that know nothing at all about it and think they have it already. 
And this, again, is something that is so symptomatic of the times and culture that we live in, a people that hate goodness, that hate joy, and believe that they are victimized and that their satisfaction and joy comes in screaming and getting in the face of the people that they feel are their oppressors. And that, that sort of desire for revenge uh, is something that the scriptures tell us over and over again to avoid trying to seek revenge. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and, but the human condition is such that we want vengeance, we want to get back at people. And then the famous artist. Uh, this, you could do a whole book on this little section. Don't worry. Uh, so, here we go. God, said the ghost, glancing around the landscape. God what, asked the spirit. What do you mean, God what, asked the ghost. The spirit said, in our grammar, God is a noun. Oh, I see. I only meant by gum or something of the sort. I meant, well, all this, it's, it's, I should like to paint this. I shouldn't bother about that just at present, if I were you. Look here, isn't one going to be allowed to go on painting? Looking comes first. But I've had my look. I've seen just what I want to do. God, I wish I'd thought of bringing my things with me. The spirit shook his head, scattering light from his hair as he did so. That sort of thing's no good here, he said. What do you mean, said the ghost? When you painted on earth, at least in your earlier days, it was because you caught glimpses of heaven in the earthly landscape. The success of your painting was that it enabled others to see the glimpses too. But here, you are having the thing itself. It is from here that the messages came. There's no good telling us about this country, for we see it already. In fact, we see it better than you do. Then there's never going to be any point in painting here? I don't say that. When you've grown into a person, it's all right, we all had to do it. There'll be some things which you'll see better than anyone else. One of the things you will want to do will be to tell us about them, but not yet. At present, your business is to see. Come and see. He is endless. Come and feed. There was a little pause. That will be delightful, said the ghost presently in a rather dull voice. How soon do you think I could begin painting, it asked. The spirit broke into laughter. Don't you see you'll never paint at all if that's what you're thinking about, he said. What do you mean, asked the ghost. Why, if you are interested in the country only for the sake of painting it, you will never learn to see the country. But that's just how a real artist is, interested in the country. No, you're forgetting, said the spirit. That was not how you began. Light itself was your first love. You loved paint only as a means of telling about light. Oh, that's ages ago, said the ghost. What grows out of that? Of course, you haven't seen my later works. One becomes more and more interested in paint for its own sake. One does indeed. I also have had to recover from that. 
It was all a snare. Ink and catgut and paint were necessary down there, but they are also dangerous stimulants. Every poet and musician and artist, but for grace, is drawn away from love of the thing he tells to love of the telling, till down in deep hell they cannot be interested in God at all, but only in what they say about him. But if there's any of that inflammation left, it will be cured when you come to the fountain. What fountain's that? It is up there in the mountains, said the spirit, very cold and clear between two green hills, a little like Lethe, which is the river of forgetfulness in Hades. When you've drunk of it, you forget forever all proprietorship in your own works. You enjoy them just as if they were someone else's, without pride and without modesty. That'll be grand, said the ghost without enthusiasm. Shall I meet Claude or Cezanne or sooner or later, if they're here? But don't you know? Well, of course, I've only been here a few years. All the chances are against my having run across them. There are a good many of us, you know. But surely in the case of distinguished people you'd hear, but they aren't distinguished, no more than anyone else. Don't you understand? The glory flows into everyone and back from everyone, like light and mirrors, but the light's the thing. Do you mean there are no famous men? They are all famous. They are all known, remembered, recognized by the only mind that can give a perfect judgment. Of course, of course, in that sense, said the ghost. Don't stop, said the spirit, making to lead him still forward. One must be content with one's reputation among posterity then, said the ghost. My friend, said the spirit, don't you know? Now what? That you and I are already completely forgotten on the earth. You couldn't get five pounds for any picture of mine or even of yours in Europe or America today. We're dead out of fashion. I must be off at once, said the ghost. Let me go. Damn it all, one's got one's duty to the future of art. I must go back to my friends. I must write an article. There must be a manifesto. We must start a periodical. We must have publicity. Let me go. This is beyond a joke. And without listening to the spirit's reply, the specter vanished. Yeah, there's a lot to talk about there. All right, so moving along, because I promise we're going to finish this chapter. Uh, so some themes tonight to think about. The first one, grumbling and complaining are spiritually dangerous habits that when practiced continually become an addiction that we can no longer control, but which controls us instead. Let me say that again. Grumbling and complaining are spiritually dangerous habits that when practiced continually become an addiction that we can no longer control, but which controls us instead. And this is what we just talked about in that passage that's up on the screen. Uh, this whole idea that we think a little grumbling, a little complaining, we're entitled to that. I mean, really. Sometimes there are things, people don't do what they should. And you know, when that person waiting on you doesn't do what they should, 
or that airline personnel hangs up on you instead of dealing with your complaint, it is really easy, since you didn't get the opportunity to tell them off, to go to your friends and say, you wouldn't believe what happened to me today. Don't ever call Delta Airlines. And we go on and on and on and on. But the problem with that, as Lewis says, is that this is the same slippery slope that he describes in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with Edmund and the Turkish Delight. At first, Edmund just wants a piece of Turkish Delight. And then after he's had a piece, he wants more pieces. And then he wants a box of Turkish Delight. And then he gets to where all he wants is Turkish Delight to the point that he is willing to basically give over his siblings to be killed so he can keep getting Turkish delight. What happens is that you lose all sense of right and wrong and balance because whatever this habit is takes you over. And I think in our culture, this is one of the things that Satan is using to completely undermine the ability of the church to share the gospel. And I just talked about this in a sermon, which I'm not going to re-preach. But if you're supposed to be the salt and light, and all you ever do is complain, I'm sorry to tell you that no one is going to want to be around you. People are not interested in listening to other people complain, no matter how much they tell you they are. Uh, one of the other things that is really interesting, and I think this is uh, very constant with the theme in this book, that all truth is God's truth, is that there is increasing evidence uh, from psychology that complaining is really bad for you I mean, in all sorts of ways, and that listening to other people complain is also really bad for you. And the whole habit that now we've got a, a nice euphemism for complaining, venting. Um, venting is actually the worst thing that you can do. Um, it makes you feel worse instead of better. And the antidote for all of this is practicing gratitude. And it is not an accident that there are numerous scriptures that enjoin us uh, to not be people of complaining, but people who are rejoicing and giving thanks. And I think the most compelling one is this one from Philippians, do everything, that is a rather inclusive word, everything. Do everything without complaining and arguing so that no one can criticize you. Live clean, innocent lives as children of God, shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. When you live in a culture that's characterized by complaining, if you're practicing joy and gratitude, you are going to shine like a star because there are not many people practicing that out there. People will be drawn to you like a magnet. The second theme is that appreciation of beauty is enhanced by the company of a wiser companion. You'll notice in the passage that Lewis makes particular reference to the fact that being with George MacDonald, someone who was deeper spiritually than he was, and being with him in the context of the beauty of this far green country caused all of, Mac of Lewis's own senses to be enlivened. And so this is again uh, very much that idea from Proverbs, whoever walks with the wise will become wise. 
the more that you spend time with people who have uh, developed some of these qualities and fruit of the spirit that we've been talking about, the more that you will become like them. Conversely, if you spend most of your time uh, with, and it really doesn't matter whether it's CNN or PBS NewsHour or Fox News or whatever, if that's what you're spending your time with, you are going to be more and more like that. And that is not uh, joyful or beautiful. So what you spend your time doing and who you're with, those things matter. Thirdly, obsession with sexual seduction can become an addiction that destroys your humanity. And that horrible image of the vamp ghost uh, should give us all pause, because this is really where our culture is now. Uh, the fact that identity, and Justin just preached about this, so many people conceive of their identity solely in terms of their sexuality. And this is so far away from the Christian conception that you are made in the image of God and made with beautiful gifts and meaning and purpose and that you have a destiny in the world and you have agency to make a difference in all of that. And we wanna trade all of that in for just one aspect of what it means to be human. And it is, it is pitiful. And it is not an accident, again, that in 1 Corinthians, Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. He doesn't say tiptoe away when you feel like it or when you think you're being tempted too much. He says flee. This is the same word that if you were talking about a four-alarm fire in the building that you were sitting in, that's what it means. It means run, get out of there. And yet we live in a culture where there are also, I'm not going to go into all of the horrible things like tender that are out there in our culture, uh, but there are so many things that just support sexual immorality and the idea that that is all there is to life and that your whole goal is to be sexually fulfilled. And what Lewis is saying here is this, if that's what your goal is, that obsession will kill you, both in terms of your joy and your eternal destiny. The fourth one, glorying in the corruption of hell deadens you to the desirability of heaven. And remember this passage, they seem to think that the mere fact of having contrived for themselves so much misery gave them a kind of superiority, as if to tinge heaven with infernal images and colors had been the only purpose for which they came. All were equally incurious about the country in which they had arrived. They repelled every attempt to teach them. And what Lewis is getting at, imagine that you had never left the low country. Now, I will say the low country is a pretty great place. But imagine that you had never left the low country, and somehow a friend decided that they were going to pay for you to go and stay in the Ritz Hotel in Paris and to eat in some of the most glorious restaurants in France and to have a personal guided tour of the Musée d'Orsay with the Impressionist collection all by yourself while the museum was closed. And you got there and you sat in your hotel room and you tried to order shrimp and grits from room service and they didn't have it 
and you said, I'm mad as hell, and I'm not going to take it anymore. I want to go home. And that's basically what Lewis is saying these people are doing, that they've gotten so worked up in their concept and their theology of hell that they can't even hear. They're not interested. They don't believe that there's anything that could be interesting about heaven. They're not interested in facts. They're not interested in good theology. They're only interested in their own opinion. And there is this uh, great passage. Uh, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desires he is lured away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. And then that awful passage from Romans 1. So they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And the really horrible part I didn't include, which is the God gave them over. Part of what Lewis is getting at here is really expounding what that God gave them over means. That when you choose over and against God, and you continually thumb your nose at God and say, I want my truth, I don't care about your truth, and you treat uh, God's word and the things of God's kingdom, they become like pearls before swine. The more that you do that, eventually a time comes where God gives you over. And that is a very frightening and sad thought, but it is consonant with that idea that God will not force you to follow him. Fifthly, seeing yourself as a victim And embracing bitterness and hatred leads to contempt for goodness and joy. And if there were ever anything that were true in our culture, uh, this would probably be the saddest one. I think Lewis would just be shocked. Well, maybe not, because he predicted a lot of what was coming. But um, the extent to which this has happened, where people are so locked in the prison of their choices and so determined that they are victims that they are, even though they know that they are living in deep anxiety and despair, they don't care because they feel like this is what they must do to be true to themselves and to their victimhood. And uh, I think he puts it so beautifully in this passage we just read. They came up to this country and leapt far into it over the torturing grass, only to spit and gibber out in one ecstasy of hatred, their envy and their contempt of joy. The voyage seemed to them a small price to pay if only once within sight of that eternal dawn they could tell the prigs, the toffs, the sanctimonious humbugs, the snobs, the haves, what they thought of them. Scripture is so clear about how dangerous 
letting that kind of root of bitterness arise is. Way back in the Psalms, refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. And part of what that's getting at is that if you take, and I'm not for a moment denying that terrible things happen to people. Terrible things happen to people. But the whole point of the mercy of God is to come running to him, to the only one who has experienced the real agony of what it means to be human, the real agony of having been betrayed by those who are closest to him, and then as a complete innocent, being put to a torturous death on the cross. Of all people who can understand when bad things have been done to you, Jesus is the one. Whenever Amy Orr Ewing's talk comes out from mere Anglicanism, she addresses this, and I commend that to you. The second scripture, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. And then jumping over to art, if there ever were a culture that is really confused about art, this would be it. Uh, I don't know how many of you saw the Super Bowl halftime show. Uh, many people... Serious people, serious educated people with graduate degrees in art will tell you that that was great art. I just, just putting that out there. That is great art in some people's view. Now what that should tell you is that something has gone very wrong with the philology of art, what the word actually means. So. Uh, Lewis says, the true purpose of art and the artist is to give glimpses of the glory and beauty of heaven because of his love for them, not because of his love of the craft or of fame. When you painted on earth, at least in your earlier days, it was because you caught glimpses of heaven in the earthly landscape. The success of your painting was that it enabled others to see the glimpses too. And then there's some just beautiful scriptures about types and shadows, um, one of them being this one. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. And then this great verse about any kind of endeavor, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. And just one little extra comment here. Part of what Lewis writes about brilliantly here is very succinct, but he expands this in some of his essays, is that the whole course of art is off track. And what Lewis would say is that we are made in God's image and that the fullness of being made in God's image is being what Lewis and Tolkien called sub-creators, people who are able to envision something and then to make it, either through paint or sculpture or whatever it might be, or to write it, which is unlike anything else in all of creation. 
but he says the truest kind of making is imitative, that when we are trying to imitate the beauty and glory of heaven, when we imitate the beauty that is with us in creation, and y'all have heard me probably talk more than you want to about things like the golden mean, the golden ratio, the Fibonacci sequence, um, things that are in music. There are all of these things that are hardwired into the way that creation is, and they are beautiful. And when we create according to those kinds of principles, we are uh, in some way honoring the way that uh, heaven is. But the problem is that in our culture today, uh, and Lewis wrote about this in the 40s and used these exact words, he says, the worst thing that you could, could be said about art or literature is that it is derivative or imitative. The best thing about it that could be said is that it is bold, that it's boundary breaking, that it's shocking, uh, those kinds of things. And he said, that will be the death of art. Well, that's not a very happy thought. Uh, but I think Lewis is getting at something here that is so important in recovery of art and recovery of true beauty, whether it be in painting or in writing or in architecture or whatever, is one of the most important and noble spiritual pursuits. And Christians need to be involved in these things because that is part of the way that we can uh, tell a more beautiful story. So I want to close again by going back to Brahms' German Requiem. Uh, this Requiem is just an absolutely beautiful piece of music. But one of the things that is so great about this particular section, how lovely is thy dwelling place, is that the music slows down, and it's like a good hymn tune, where the emphasis of the music and the words is synchronized so that it has uh, more of an effect on you. And there, there's a measured, lovely, stately, reflective pace to the music as it pairs with these words from Psalm 84. And as we close tonight, I'd like for us to say these words together. How lovely is thy dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! For my soul it longeth, yea, fainteth for the courts of the Lord. My soul and body crieth out, yea, for the living God. O blessed are they that dwell in thy house. They praise thy name evermore. And there is much to contemplate there because, as we've said, part of the reason that Lewis is so interested in the juxtaposing these passages about beauty in the great divorce is that he's talking about heaven. He's talking about the place that as Christians, our lives are pointed toward, that our course is set there. But he says our desire for heaven is too weak, that we have uh, too much of what uh, you might call a Hallmark card theology of heaven, that we think it's little pink angels on clouds with little harps. And then we think, why is my soul not excited about eternity hearing amazing grace for the 14 millionth time on the little angelic harp? Um, but that's not what heaven is at all. 
And what Lewis is trying to do is to fire our hearts and our imaginations about this so that we think about how lovely is God's dwelling place and so that we meditate on those passages like Revelation 21, like some of the Psalms that describe the beauty, not only of heaven, but the beauty of the Lord. So as we walk through this week, I would encourage you um, to try to, even if you're on the beach or snorkeling, try to find time to just listen to this little part of this music and think about the words because it will change your attitude. So with that, let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for the deep wisdom that is in this book. And Lord, we confess to you how easily we are overwhelmed by the tide of our culture that washes over us with complaining and grumbling and misunderstandings about the role of sexuality, misunderstandings about the role of art. And Lord, in the midst of all of this wave after wave after wave of stuff, it is so easy to be tempted to despair. But Lord, we know as Christians that we have a hope that is sure and certain, a hope that cannot fail, an anchor that holds within the veil. And Lord, we pray that you would remind us of that, that you would remind us of the love and beauty and grace and goodness and truth that are found in you alone, and that in being inspired by that, we would shine like lights in this crooked and perverse generation as we hold out the word of life to those who so desperately need it. Lord, we pray for your blessing. We pray for your empowerment as we go from this place that we might love and serve you with our whole heart. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.